promise keeper, light in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. Good morning, CBC. My name is Evan Leppler, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And I want to take a moment just to thank you for joining us for worship this morning. Whether you're joining us in person or online, it's our hope, our prayer, that you will grow in your relationship with the Lord. As a church, we believe in beginning where we are and becoming more like Jesus. We do this as we gather in life-changing worship, grow in life-changing truth, and go in life-changing mission. So, whether it is through the songs, the word, the fellowship, and more, we hope you'll experience God's presence and celebrate Him today. Before we begin our time together, I want to take a minute to share one brief reminder. CBC is offering you two tangible ways you can donate and minister to others at Christmas. Number one, monetary donations that will be used to buy gift cards that are given to CBC families who are currently in a time of need. Number two, provide a shoebox full of items for an international child in another part of the world. Check our website or pick up a flyer in the foyer and see how you can be a part of one or both of these opportunities to bless others at Christmas. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul talks about when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. He says in verses 1 through 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We were once dead in sin and separated from eternal life in the kingdom of God. But thanks be to God that through him we can be made alive. Listen to verses 4 through 7. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Friends, may we join together in celebration and in gratitude for that glorious day when, in faith, we stepped out of death and darkness into eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
let us offer him our thanks and praise. Let's stand together. Won't you sing now? I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb. Come on. Till I met you. I was breathing but not alive In all my failures I tried to hide It was my tomb Till I met you Lord you call You call my name And I
God, he has called us out of that grave into new life in him. What a glorious day indeed when Jesus called my name and I ran out of the grave. As believers in Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we can all proclaim this and offer him praise because of who he is and what he has done. You see, sin doesn't just make us bad, it gives us a death sentence. We are all in desperate need of a Savior. Jesus is the one true Savior who not only died for our sin, but raised us to everlasting life. He conquered sin and death, and the grave no longer has a hold on us when we trust in Him. We are with Him in glory, eternal life, now and forever. In John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, crying at his tomb. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. Jesus knows your name too, and he calls you by name out of the grave. Through him, we can unwind the grave clothes of sin and shame because we have been set free and raised to glorious life. All the chains of your past and worries for your future have been swallowed up forever in victory. Scripture says the very same Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in each of us who follow Jesus. This is the reality for you today. Do you trust Him? Will you trust Him? That is our prayer for all of us. Give your life to Him and He will set you free. Oh, no. 
It will be my joy to say Your will, your way It will be my joy to say Your will, your way It will be my joy to say Your will, your way Always Let's sing that again, church it will be my joy. It will be my joy to say your will, your way. It will be my joy to say your will, your way. It will be my joy to say your will, your way, always. Now let your voice ring out. Hallelujah. I 
washed by his blood. We'll let your voice sing out. Come and rejoice in his great love. Oh, praise him. Alleluia. come before you this morning, and we recognize that you are the creator, the sustainer, you're the alpha, the omega, you know the beginning and the end. Lord, you're the one who loved us so much that you sent your son to redeem us, and Lord, we worship you for that. Lord, we uh, come before you recognizing uh, that your thoughts are beyond our thoughts. Uh, Lord, that you, um, uh, you are bigger than any circumstances of this earth. And so, Lord, we want to recognize that. We also recognize that you sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to re redeem our relationship, to make us one with you. And so, Lord, we thank you for that privilege that we have by faith to believe in Christ so that we might know you. Lord, we also thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us and prompts us and prompts truth to come to our minds at times when we need it, who comforts us who convicts us of sin, who reminds us when we're not on the path of honoring you. So, Lord, we worship you for the gift of the Holy Spirit as well. And, Lord, this morning, I come, we come to confess our sins. 
Lord, sometimes we've been so concerned about our own self-preservation, we've missed you in the midst of that. Lord, sometimes we're concerned about our own plans and our own, uh, our own directions and our own thoughts and our own agendas and our own ideas that sometimes, Lord, we've neglected to kneel and ask you what you want us to do. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the times that we've not loved someone else because we haven't liked the way they act, the way they think, the way they speak, the way they type. Lord, forgive us. You've called us to love others. That's a, that is a huge representation of who you are. And so, Lord, we ask for forgiveness for those times when we've been more divisive than we have about lifting up your name. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for those times where we've been more focused on ourselves than loving you or loving others. And so, God, we need your grace and your forgiveness in that. And, Lord, we're thankful. I am thankful that you are above and beyond all the circumstances of our life. And, Lord, right now, our world is in a heavy place. As the COVID virus, it's uncertain what the outcome and the direction will be. But, Lord, we know that fear is reigning because of that. Lord, it's unclear as people across our world feel like they have been disenfranchised and not treated well. And Lord, forgive us for the times we've not treated others well. And so, Lord, we pray that there would be a racial bringing together that Scripture promises people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, that we would come together to worship you regardless of the political leanings across our world. So, Lord, give us a voice that wants to worship you. And so, Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to come to worship you. And Lord, if ever there was a time we need your help, we need your help desperately. We need your help this week. Lord, I am certain that probably all of us in the pit of our stomach has some level of anxiety or concern. What will happen after Tuesday or whatever happens Wednesday, Thursday, the end of this month, next month, into January? Lord, as I thank you that we have the freedom to vote and express ourselves, but Lord, I am confident, even in our own congregation, some will rejoice at the, at the conclusion, others will be troubled by that. And so, God, because even we as a church are not united on how we view things politically, help us to be united on the things we believe about Christ. Help that to be the foundation that we can build upon. And so, God, we need your help on Tuesday to worship you, on Wednesday to worship you, on Thursday to worship you. So, God, forgive us for the times when we are more about our own plans and what you want. And, Lord, whatever happens here, help us to be able to be representatives of Christ, that love you first and foremost and love, uh, love our brothers and sisters in Christ and love those who do not yet know you. And so, God, we just ask for you to answer our prayers and to give us guidance this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
when you came to my rescue and I I want to be where you Gabriel leads our Spanish language ministry here at uh, CBC, and uh, 
this week, he told me that uh, one thing he doesn't get about my preaching is when I use sarcasm. I had to restrain myself even at that moment. Sarcasm is saying the opposite of what you mean to make a point. So you might be standing inside at a window with somebody and outside it's thunder and lightning and hail and torrential rain and you say, what a beautiful day for a picnic. That's sarcasm. Or what I used to tell my youngest daughter as she lived with us for a few years after graduation, how can I miss you if you never leave? Irony, sarcasm, it's a very American thing. Not a Cuban thing, as Pastor Gabriel would tell you. But it is a technique of the Apostle Paul. As we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians, Paul uses a whole lot of irony and mockery, sarcasm, in our passage this morning. I remember in 50 AD, Paul preached the good news of Jesus in this great city of Corinth, and people got saved. The church was formed, and Paul taught them the things of God for 18 months before moving on to another city. Five years later, he hears that this church is struggling. It's divided. There's conflict. There's jealousy, selfishness, spiritual pride. They're living more like the culture of Corinth than they are like Jesus. And so Paul writes this letter to correct these problems, to address them specifically. And this message is extremely relevant to us in our day because these same errors are going on in our world even as I speak. So as we continue our study now in chapter 4, the central point of this passage is really in verse 16 that says, I urge you to imitate me. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. I urge you imitate me. As we go through this passage from verses 6 to 21 of 1 Corinthians 4, let's see what kind of church leader is worth imitating. How and why Paul says this. Because one of the problems in the church at Corinth was that some leaders were being exalted and others were being ignored. And some saw themselves as spiritually elite and and super mature and on this higher level than others in the church. So what kind of leader should be followed? Here are four marks of a leader worth imitating. We'll go through this passage, verses 6 to 21, and see four marks of a leader worth imitating. And these things are for those who follow Jesus, whose faith and trust is in Christ alone. And these are things that should be true of your pastor. These four marks should be true of your group leader. They should be true of your teacher. And frankly, if you follow Jesus, they should be true of you. As you, as you parent, as you live in a marriage, should be true of you as a spouse, they should be true of you as a supervisor, they should be true of you as a co-worker, as a friend, as a neighbor, if you follow Jesus. So let's go through this passage and see these four marks of leaders worth imitating. The first mark, leader worth imitating, displays grace, not pride. Grace, not pride. Let me read verses 6 and 7. Now, brothers, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, 
so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? So Paul calls out the church for being prideful. They were puffed up. This is a word he's going to use three times in this passage. They're inflated. They're, they're swelled up in their evaluations of others and of themselves. Now, now some who were arrogant in that way, it was over the leader that they preferred. And some of the leaders were puffed up because people thought they were better than other leaders. And in doing this, this puffed up arrogance, they were going beyond what is written. Now, uh, there's a complicated scholarly debate uh, about what that phrase means. It's already been interpreted for you in this passage in some translations, but I'm going to skip all that scholarly debate and just say I believe Paul is referring to the five Old Testament quotations that he's already used in the first three chapters. Five times he quotes the Old Testament. And those quotations are primarily about, uh, they emphasize not boasting about human wisdom, but in the Lord alone. Boasting in the Lord alone. And Paul says if you follow that scripture, then you're not going to be prideful about your gifts and abilities or about the gifts and abilities of others. So he pops the balloon of pride and says, nothing you have done gives you room to boast. Every single thing you have comes from God. And when he says, who makes you different than anyone else? He's not saying that we're not different. In fact, that's a point that he makes uh, throughout the, the First Corinthians letter is that we have different gifts and abilities. You and I are different parts of the same body of Christ. We, we, we have different things that God has given to us. So he, he emphasizes difference. But, but here, that, that word different, diacrino, means to judge. It means to evaluate. It's when you divide between two things. It's when you say, okay, this group, I like this group. They're better than this group over here. It, it's this division, uh, th this evaluation uh, that, that distinguishes one from another. And the Corinthians were comparing their gifts and abilities and distinguishing themselves one from another. And, Paul, and based on that evaluation, they were proud. And instead, Paul says, you need to realize everything you have is a gift of grace. You didn't earn it, deserve it, no matter how able you are. This is all from God. Yes, you're special, but it's God who makes you special. That's why. So let me put it this way. Do not imitate any Christian who sees him or herself in a different class of spirituality because of their abilities. And this was happening in Corinth. It's happening in our country. Uh, don't imitate any leader of whom this is true. In fact, the more gifted and the more effective a leader is, the more grace-filled they should be rather than pride-filled. Many years ago, uh, Ramaz Italia uh, attended an international conference on evangelism. Uh, Christian leaders, global leaders from all over the world were, were part of this, and he was thrilled to be there with these top-notch leaders. And every night, uh, the conference then broke up into small groups and... Uh, the, the small groups shared and prayed together. And Ramez says, uh, the first night in our group, we introduced ourselves. President of a seminary, pastor of a church with 2,000 people, and so on. He says, everybody was showing how great they were. And I said, I led the InterVarsity movement in Quebec. 
It was actually a very small ministry, but it sounded good. And one man said, I'm a pastor in Kenya. I didn't pay much attention to him. I wanted to get close to the important people. I pictured him working in a humble little village in Africa. After the conference, Ramez is flying back home to Canada, a long flight, and he takes out the business cards that he'd collected. Uh, He had one from every important global leader at that conference that he had met, and he had a card from everyone in the small group that he had prayed with each night. And he said this, As I looked through my cards, I noticed one that was not very well printed. It said, Festo Along, Archbishop of Kenya. He said, this broke me. Along was a man who could pull rank on anybody in our group. He was a bigwig, but we didn't know it, and he didn't tell us. He did not use his position to secure his identity. He was a simple pastor who loved Jesus, and that changed my life forever. Imitate leaders who radiate grace, not pride. Second, leaders worth imitating suffer like Jesus. Verses 8 to 13. Paul says, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you would really become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, We have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Now the reason the Corinthians are proud, the reason they're boastful, is because they see themselves as spiritually perfected. Probably not all of them, but a a portion of that church does. We're super mature, super gifted. They're measuring themselves according to the values of the world. They see Christian maturity as being Paul says, filled, satiated, being rich, being rulers. So they define success the way the world does, much like the prosperity gospel does, the scourge of the gospel in our country and around the world, gauging spirituality by how much you have, how successful you are, how rich you are. That's the the very gospel that Paul is preaching against here. Paul says, sarcastically. I'm glad you're overfed, wealthy, and powerful, but that's not the way life looks for me. No. If your life is that easy, you must be living more like the world than like Jesus. See, suffering is not some phase you grow out of when you become more spiritual. In fact, the way to maturity involves suffering. And for those who belong to Jesus, yes, you have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Yes, you have an inheritance that can never be lost, never fade away. But you also share in his foolishness, in his weakness, in his humiliation in the eyes of the world. So Paul is being mistreated. He's experiencing hardship. And yet, how did he respond? He responded like Jesus. That's what he says in verse 12. When we're cursed... We bless. 
when we're harassed and persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we're gracious. We speak kindly. That's exactly how Jesus responded and reacted when he was insulted and threatened and abused. And if you follow Jesus, you can expect that same kind of treatment from the world. And instead of seeing yourselves as top of the heap, realize that the world is going to view you as something to scrape off the bottom of their shoe. And when you get treated that way, suffer like Jesus. Imitate no leader who expects star treatment. When you follow Christ, there will be some deprivation, some struggle, some hardship. Third mark, leaders worth imitating model what they teach. Verse 14, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I'm sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. So instead of elitism, status-seeking, Paul calls them to a life that looks very different from their culture. They can imitate how Paul lived. He spent 18 months teaching them, living among them. They know him. He's their spiritual parent. God gave Paul the privilege of sharing the gospel with these people. He preached that salvation comes only through faith in Christ crucified. No other way. That the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is the only way sin can be washed clean and we can be made God's children. When we turn from our sin to Jesus, when we repent of our sin and turn to Jesus as the only Savior, you become a new creation, a child of God, an heir of salvation. And so Paul, because they responded to that message, is their spiritual dad. And he encourages them to look at his life and follow him. To help out in this, Paul's going to send them Timothy. Timothy is his trusted disciple. Timothy is going to remind them of the things that Paul taught, but also he's going to confirm that Paul is still living out the gospel. That Paul's actions line up with his teaching everywhere he goes, in every church he's in. His life still lines up with what he says, and Timothy's going to come and verify that again. So, the downfall of many Christian leaders is that they impose on others things they don't practice themselves. Now, of course, none of us are perfect in every area of life. Not a single one of us. We all fail. We all sin. We all need to confess daily. But no one should teach what the Word of God says and then fail to apply it to their own lives. So if I preach to you the Word of God that talks about honoring the Lord with your money and your time and your talents, I have absolutely failed if I am not honoring the Lord with my money and my time and my talents. I can't ask of you something that I'm not doing myself. 
If I preach the word, as we did when I went through the Gospel of Mark, that, that Jesus came to serve rather than be served. And I, and I preached that message, and, and yet I'm not one who's serving. But to fail. I preach as I have from Romans that we're called to live at peace with everyone as much as it depends on you. And I have relationships where I'm not pursuing peace and I'm content to live at odds with others. I failed. Now, as a pastor, and this is Paul's point, I, I, Paul's saying I'm close to people, Timothy and others, that, that are verifying that what I'm preaching to you, I'm, I'm trying to live out. I'm not just telling you to do something I'm not doing. As a pastor, I have to get close to people. I can't get close to all the people. I can't even get close to half the people, but some of the people. Why? So they can see my way of life, to see if it matches up. If what I am here on the platform, I am also next to you in the coffee shop. Or... So therefore, I'm always part of a small group, at least one. I'm always teaching classes when there's not a pandemic going on. I'm always having regular one-on-one -on -one meetings with other men. And I am as transparent with our board of elders that I can possibly be. And I have shared with them, and I imagine they would verify you, my insecurities, my failings, my viewpoints, my concerns, my decisions. So they know who I am. And so they can say, hey, what you're preaching isn't matching up with what you're living. Imitate no leader whose words don't match his ways. Recently, some women testified that an internationally known Christian leader, apologist, indulged in sexual activity in front of them. Several different women. And according to their testimony, he had told them, more than one of them separately, he had to do this to relieve the pressure he was under because of his worldwide ministry. So, to whatever extent that that is accurate, that is the opposite of what the Scriptures tell us. That what he would have condemned in anyone else, he was excusing in himself because of the intense pressure of the Gospel ministry. Hogwash. Imitate leaders whose words match their ways. Fourth, leaders worth imitating speak hard truths with gentleness. With gentleness. Verse 18. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? So some in the church were full of themselves. Here, Paul uses this word arrogant again, which means to be puffed up, to be inflated. And they were so full of themselves, they wouldn't listen to anyone, not even Paul. They don't think he's going to show up these spiritually elitists. But if God allows, he says, I will. And then I'll find out if you're full of anything but hot air. They talk a lot, but the evidence 
will be a God-empowered life. See, true spiritual character is not determined by impressive words, but by a transformed life. And the reality was their thinking was more Corinthian than it was cruciform. Cruciform means to be shaped by the cross. And so their thinking was more cultural than it was cruciform. It was more the, the culture of Corinth than it was shaped by the cross. And Paul is going to arrive in person and straighten them out. And he says, shall I show up with a whip to beat you? Or would you prefer the kind and gentle treatment? This is sarcasm. All right? Do you want a dictator or do you want a dad? You want an angry tyrant or do you want a loving father? Of course, none of us want to be beaten. We, we don't want that kind of harsh treatment. But we all need discipline and correction, don't we? And the calling for the people of God, Ephesians 4, 13, 15, is to speak the truth in love. Only in that way can we help each other grow to be more like Jesus. I'll talk more about this in my video devotional tomorrow morning. But it's our responsibility to speak the truth to each other, but also to do it with love. Imitate no leader who fails to do both. There are leaders who tell it like it is, who are bold in pointing out error, who exhort, who challenge, but they're bullies. They're prideful. They're condescending. And, and people might love to sit under their ministry for a while until they get so beaten up because these leaders are controlling. That's a fail. And then there are leaders who are kind and encouraging and inspiring and comforting and nice, but completely silent about the truth you need to hear. They avoid hard things. Both extremes are wrong. Imitate leaders who speak hard truth with gentleness. So these are the marks of a leader worth imitating. Displaying grace, not pride. Suffering like Jesus. Modeling what you teach. Speaking hard truths with gentleness. And let me ask you, does this describe you? Not simply does this describe the one that you seek to follow, but does this describe you in your life with Jesus? Is this who you are? And imitate no one who doesn't look like this. Well, I think a constant theme in these four chapters can be expressed with these words that I must view all of life through the lens of Christ crucified. That that's the perspective I must have in everything. And let me tell you, I've had a challenging week. Maybe a little bit more challenging than normal. I've stood between angry people who were shouting at each other. I've tried to mediate between two groups with completely opposite viewpoints. I've tried to counsel people who are confused. I've tried to correct people who are mistaken. And there are times I have been too harsh in what I have said, and there are other times I've been too soft in my response. And frankly, I poorly communicated with my wife this week. It's not the only week I've done that. But in one case, I said absolutely the wrong thing. In another case, I didn't communicate at all when I really needed to. But by God's grace, I have and can deal with those things. 
I confess where I've been unchristlike. I ask forgiveness for my failures. I give forgiveness where it's needed. I trust God's wisdom and power to work through those difficult situations. And so I'm trying to see all of life through the crucified Christ. But let me tell you, something did bring me to despair this week. On Monday. I watched an hour-long sermon by a megachurch pastor about the election. And it was not a biblical sermon. It was built on some facts. It was built with some Bible verses and some half-truths and some manipulation and much opinion. And it was, I would say, unqualifiedly, a, a, a sermon guided more by worldly wisdom than by the crucified Christ. And it brought me to despair. Why? Because I know of the thousands of people who heard and watched this live and the thousands of people who watched the video like I did, many of them, most of them, maybe almost all of them will base their approach to this election on this man's presentation. And so on Monday, I was in despair. On Tuesday, I was in despair. And as I'm facing all these challenges and as I'm banging my head against this text of Scripture and asking God to reveal to me what does this say, help me to understand these words of yours so that I can preach to your people. And all those days, right up through Wednesday at noon, I asked the Lord, why are your people so willing to follow leaders who put their political agenda above the gospel? Lord, why do your people seem so indifferent to a Christ-centered message and so inspired by human wisdom and eloquence and reasoning? And I so despaired that I wanted to quit. I wanted, here's the truth, I wanted a different message. I wanted to give up. I wanted relief. Relief from this burden of ministry. And then on Wednesday at noon, I felt God speak to my spirit and say, John, you are foolish. You are weak. You are dishonored. You are the scum of the earth. Now go and preach the gospel. Let us announce the gospel in the way that Jesus told us to do until he comes. Will you this moment take your elements that we can share together as we remember the body and blood of our Lord Jesus who on that night that he was betrayed set before us this way to remember what he was doing, to call us to reflect and to celebrate and to repent and to cast ourselves on his mercy continuously with this bread and this cup, this bread representing his body on which he bore the sin of the world and was nailed to a cross and died an excruciating death 
spilling out his life's blood. That blood being the cleansing, forgiving, atoning power for our sin. My sin, your sin. And by that sacrifice, bringing to himself all who believe that we might be called the daughters and sons of Almighty God. So, as Jesus told his disciples that night, he says to me and to you, if you follow Jesus today, this bread, it's my body given for you. Let us eat. And this cup, he called it the new covenant of his blood, spilled for the forgiveness of sins. The precious blood of Christ, the the perfect Son of God, the sacrificial Lamb, died that we might have life. And so, as we drink this together in his honor, we celebrate that he has done what we could never do. He has bridged the gap between sinful people and a holy God by the sacrifice of himself. As Jesus said to his disciples that night, so he says to his followers today, drink from it, all of you. And whenever you eat and drink, you declare the Lord's death until he comes again. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for teaching us through your word this morning and for reminding us of who we are in you, the sacrifice that you made. Lord, may we respond to you this morning with hearts filled with gratitude. Friends, can we stand together? We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. The greatness of mercy and love at the feet of Jesus. And we cry, holy, holy.
chorus with me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. All to Thee, Lord. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. As you leave today, would you please take your cup with you and deposit that in the receptacle as uh, you leave the doors today as we prepare for the next service. But receive this benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of of his eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. Together. Uh-huh.